0: This is the
1: Bill Kelly Show
0: podcast. Where should a safe injection site be located here in the city of Hamilton? Uh, city Council has come out in support of this idea. Uh, they couldn't find anybody that wanted to say, hey, yeah, located here. Well, Councillor Jason Farr, the uh, Councillor for Downtown of Ward 2, uh, has an idea about that. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Councillor Farr, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about the problem and then your possible solution to this. Uh, we have done a number of programs here, of course, about the opioid crisis uh, and about what's happening here. The uh, the number of people that are impacted by this number of people who die uh, is alarming. And uh, the statistics I know that you quoted here, Jay, show that the, the problem here in Hamilton is worse than it is in many other parts of the province.
2: 78% above the provincial average. So, you know, I was... Uh uh very proud to be part of council in December of 2017 uh a near unanimous all but one voting in favor of finding within the confines of our downtown an opportunity to address the issue of uh what is now since uh we've got the latest stats 75 deaths due to opiate overdoses in hamilton and that's between january through october bill in 2017 as you know and so you know we we recognize the crisis about six months ago now and uh, moved a motion to say we'll support through our public health outside organizations to find a safe injection site at the time the motion referring to a bricks and mortar site and quite obviously uh, the result of this latest motion i'll be moving with Councillor marula on Wednesday, uh, in just a few short days, is uh, something that we hadn't expected, and that's landlords. Uh, at this point, anyway, it seems, minus one, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, I learned about over the weekend, not interested in housing such a facility. So, well, did that, we, did uh, that surprise you? Over, uh, it did a little bit. I mean, uh, there's certainly some available space. We have, uh, I think the last I heard, some. Uh, 300 or so organizations in Hamilton that uh, could be under the umbrella of uh, social services or, or public services, and a lot of them in the downtown core. And uh, so, you know, we've never failed in the past to see partnerships work, and in this particular case, I guess the outside organizations, there's a number of them from downtown, vying for the opportunity to uh, house the site and operate the site, um, uh, unfortunately couldn't find the space. So now, so now
0: listen, I don't know who they were, uh, and I'm not going to ask you for names here. No, but that's fine. But again, I, I, I just I have to surmise just on, on what you've been saying over the last couple of days, that stigma has a lot to do with this.
2: Oh, absolutely, and I mean, and we knew that, um, you know, in December when we debated the issue, we've, we've known with our conversations with public health who, through Dr. Richardson, Michelle Barrett, and others have been strong, strong uh, proponents of uh, such a facility and the idea of, uh, you know, addressing this uh, crisis of these overdoses that are happening not only in Hamilton, but quite obviously across North America and probably the world. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, all the while, there is that other half of the Conversation with it. it's it's quite clearly NIMBY, not in my backyard. And as it relates to some commercial space that might have been available, the landlord's purview uh, to date, other than the one case that I'll tell you about in a moment that I just learned about over the weekend, has been no, we don't want that facility here. And uh, perceptions and reality are two different things in this case. In a lot of cases in the downtown, we already have programs, needle exchange, uh, we have uh, you know help centers, we have organizations like the AIDS Network, Wesley, uh, the 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 uh, uh, Shelter Health Network, who have done tremendous work and are are accommodating the same clientele who have these unfortunate health issues, these addiction issues, and and the other part of the argument is, uh, you know, for those who might have the the NIMBY attitude, and and it's understandable, it's obviously going to be part of the debate when you're, we're suggesting, what we're suggesting here is what's obviously been proven successful across Canada and other communities like London, Toronto, Victoria, Vancouver, and others, is um, that, that we can't pretend that we don't, already have unsafe injection sites. Bill, I picked up about 20-25 needles myself in a 45-minute time span on Friday at three different downtown locations, all of them places where kids play. So so they're already out there. Uh, what we were suggesting is a safe injection site in Hamilton back in December. What we were anticipating is by now one would be up and running. Uh, that is not the case, but uh, we're hopeful, and uh, what Wednesday's motion is essentially is asking the hospitals, who have been tremendous partners at the table for many years now in trying to find some ways around addressing this issue if uh, they have let's say 58 by 8 by 9 foot uh, of space uh, that can accommodate this need and let that third-party organization uh, try to help and operate.
0: But I got to tell you something you mentioned a number of, of great initiatives that are going on in the city the Needle Exchange Program, uh, the work that's going on in the AIDS Network and some of the other great social service agencies. Uh, folks that were around back in the mid to late 1990s Jay, uh, some of them are still on council, Uh, will tell you that they ran into the same kind of opposition that you're facing now with this program. Uh, there just seems to be a stigma that's not in my neighborhood sort of thing, or just basically a lack of understanding. And, and and I know that one of the things I heard consistently back in those days was, well, if you provide that, you're just encouraging these guys to abuse things. Just like, you know, if you provide condoms, you're just going to encourage, you know, premarital sex, and on and on it goes. And I guess some people are never going to get over that that idea, but I mean, are we, are we missing it here with public education? Are, they, are we just not doing it a good enough job to explain what you're doing and why?
2: Well, I mean the best thing to do is simplify, because it is a touchy subject. I completely understand. But the simple answer, and one that I've already shared, and I continue to share, and I'll probably be sharing again on Wednesday night, and others who support this would say the same around the council table, including our mayor, I'm sure, and I think I can safely say. To simplify the response, it is already occurring in our community. We have unsafe injection sites. So, we we can't bury our heads in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. It certainly does. And, and you know, a lot of work went into devising the footprint of where a facility like this would best serve and obviously we devise a footprint based on where these overdoses are occurring the most and quite clearly it's happening in the downtown now like the federal and provincial policies and approvals and funding on this particular issue since council's vote in december uh, it's seeing a lot of moving parts we voted for a safe injection site what the terminology is now bill is safe consumption sites because you know opioids don't just uh, or fentanyl just doesn't exist in 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 you know heroin that you're injecting it can be other forms of drugs and so the the terminology now has changed even in the uh, six months uh, since council's approval. So well, and that it, was necessary it, it, that, be that better
0: done. reflects the problem obviously mm-hmm. absolutely and so and, and that's good I
2: mean the moving parts are getting us to a, a, a better understand the issue issue but again to simplify the response to those folks who maybe don't want it in their backyard and we can anticipate that and every other city can anticipate that sort of argument um... it already is so in an unsafe way i mean i'm finding twenty needles in forty five minutes you know approximately in parks where kids play uh... just just on a on a lunch hour inspired visit uh, uh... on friday so you know and and we need to do what we can, and council will be formally requesting that hospitals consider uh, opening up just a little bit of space. Now, the one thing I learned on the weekend being at the Beasley Fair and uh, speaking to some f- folks from the social uh, health network or the sorry the shelter health network who are partnering now with Good Shepherd is, and you, I believe spoke to Good Shepherd and Alan Whittle about this last week. Yes, so. I did. They have now officially found a partner for a temporary uh, consumption site across the street from the uh, John Rebecca Park, uh, soon to be John Rebecca Park uh, parking lot, and at Urban Core Health. So uh, while that facility itself will be moving uh, soon, uh, there's uh, uh, development coming on that particular site. Uh, while they are there, my understanding is, and from talking for, uh, to folks from the Shelter Health Network, is they've made arrangements for a temporary site uh, right across the street from the 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 parcel that you were speaking about just last week
0: and and that's good news. that's, that's good to know that, that somebody's finally going to step up here and that's it's important that we do this sort of thing but but you're still going to have these roadblocks even if you do move ahead with this idea about locating into the hospitals uh, until we get a better understanding i guess and an, an educational uh, program to talk about this. I mean, for God's sake, there's even one of the people that wants to be premier of this province that said that he's dead set against the idea of injection sites. Uh, I mean, you know, if it starts at the top, I mean, how do you how do you fight that?
2: And that particular candidate, and you know, I you know, paraphrased the quote, says, I'm more inclined to spend money uh, helping people. Well, you know, that's the other thing. That's and what again, this
0: is all about. Re- yes,
2: and a very important point. You've made it in the past, I've heard with other guests, and, and I think that's another very key point, and we need to simplify that uh, response as well. Uh, you're not just going in to inject uh, illegal street drugs that you've acquired illegally off the street in a safe place, but that safe place also will uh, provide you all sorts of opportunity and it's proven in the past with safe injection sites or safe consumption sites elsewhere that, you know, 15 to 20% of the folks uh, 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 hit the road to recovery from their visits to safe injection sites. So that's, that's a, that's a, you know, that's, that's a pretty significant statistic. And if it's done well, then quite obviously, I mean, that's a big piece. And that's the, what my second councillor Marula continues to uh, share publicly. It's, I mean, and in, in, in with his experience in, 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 you know, uh, this sort of work prior to becoming a counselor. You, you, you need to provide opportunities for people to seek help and r- where better a place than right there, uh, you know, where their unfortunate addiction is taking place.
0: Well, and we know that historically. And, and those that simply say, well, the solution here is just take that stuff off the streets. Yeah, in a perfect world, but that doesn't, exactly. stop, the, it doesn't stop the the people that are hooked on this stuff. And they're still going to try to find a way. There's always going to be a black market. What you need to do is, first of all, create a relationship, create 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 a sense of trust Mm -hmm. and then move them into programs that can help to to ease them out of this and and get on with their lives. Uh, It doesn't always work, but, you know, the absence of these programs simply means we're only going to get worse.
2: And and that's why, you know, like I said off the top, and I was proud to be part of a council. It is my ward, and um, it is where the issue of overdose deaths is most most prevalent. We can't... uh, you know uh unfortunate statistics, but we we can't stop sharing with the public the fact that we had seventy five deaths from January through October in twenty seventeen, and that is exceeding the provincial average by close to eighty percent. It is a major issue it is definitely a crisis. Sometimes we overuse the word crisis in our community when we're referring to different issues. This one is indeed that, and so it's incumbent upon us to do whatever we can. So we hit a roadblock with with, with landlords, these third-party organizations while well, they're in the application process to be operators in the city of Hamilton for safe consumption sites. Um, you know, the, the next step for council, I think, is to think a little bit outside the box and just a little bit outside the boundary of uh, what our approval was for a SIS or safe injection site in December, and ask our hospitals who have been tremendous partners, who have the wherewithal, who have the knowledge, and who have, let's face it, emergency operations on site in their hospitals, the doctors and so forth, that could treat unfortunate overdose incidences without the, the need for. You know, this in a way, Bill, also addresses the Code Zero uh, situation. While we ha- are talking about safe consumption sites operated by qualified individuals and funded by the province, the reality is if there is, and unfortunately, there probably would be a few overdoses, and who knows actually the actual number. You you need a, an ambulance or a fire truck to come and then take that individual from the off-site, safe injection site or safe consumption site, to the hospital. We all know that once that naloxone is given to the overdose victim, then you are now going to be sitting in a waiting room for some time uh, while you're okay, uh, it's still incumbent upon those uh, emergency personnel, the ambulance drivers, and so forth, to be waiting in that emergency room when they could be doing other things. Well, if the safe consumption site is actually on-site, we wouldn't have um, uh, you know, the possibility of Code Zero uh, uh, code zero uh, 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 being a, a factor in, in um, that situation.
0: All right, let's talk about how this is going to work out. I've got the motion that you're going to be presenting mm-hmm. uh, in front of me right now. There's about eight paragraphs of where is, where is, where is. This is like a book. I just skipped to the last page and see how it's gonna end therefore therefore be resolved Uh, and basically as you've outlined it's uh, that the appropriate staff from Public Health be requested as a priority to engage with Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's on the feasibility Uh, have you asked any of those people I mean I know you've invited staff to do it officially but have there been any offline conversations with them I mean it it would be regrettable if this motion passes on Wednesday and they say now we're not interested
2: uh, well, you know, there's always, obviously, what we've said a few times here, they've been a partner. They they, they have really stepped up, and I don't think our, our health department could have made the advancements and the recommendations that we ultimately approve for a safe injection site in December if it weren't for the assistance of the very good people from Hamilton Health Sciences in St. Joe's. What I, I know is that there have been informal uh, uh, conversations, although I have yet to find any details on, on that. I did ask uh, Michelle Barrett uh, just on Friday uh, when and where those informal conversations ha- have taken place. And I, I, the response I got is more, they've been a partner, we've always been talking, uh, they've been very supportive of uh, what appears to be offsite, but I, I can't validate just yet, Bill, whether or not this particular um, uh, question of finding, you know, 58 feet by 8 feet by 9 feet to to, uh, to accommodate on-site at one of the two hospitals in our downtown has has actually happened or taken place. That said, uh, certainly there's been a myriad of different discussion points and talking points as we've uh, moved forward with this issue. So maybe it has happened informally, and the whole point of this motion is to actually formalize it, to make it formal, to have the right people in the room, and the right people respond to council in obviously uh, a, a, a quick fashion, and uh, let us know uh, you know if there are our cons and bill i'm challenged to find any cons at this point of finding space in one of our hospitals then l- let council know about that and let let's make it a formal conversation because right now we I have no idea whether or not um it's been you know, uh, uh, addressed in some fashion, over the last couple of years, and and quickly uh, discouraged for whatever reasons, or whether or not uh, it hasn't happened.
0: Well, I'm not so sure they'd be discouraged, and and I wouldn't even consider uh, challenging the the, the dedication the both of these uh, institutions have towards the community. I think oh, that's no. well stated and well documented. But there could be some logistical things that they may have to consider and maybe already have considered. And, you know, it's, it's not as if they're going to say, yeah, yeah, guys can start next week. I mean, they, you know, there's some work that needs to go into this. And I, I, I'd like to think that given the, 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 the urgency that's at play here, that there's already been some initial discussion so they could at least look around and say, yeah, I think we can do this or not instead of starting with a clean sheet. Because uh, uh, every day this doesn't happen, there's a possibility more lives being lost
2: absolutely and uh, you know we hope we can find a, a small space that makes sense that a third party provider would essentially rent uh, from the funding they receive from the province and from the approvals they receive from the province to operate uh, a safe consumption site in, in essentially a provincial facility which is what hospitals are so um, you know I, I've had some good responses from the community on the on the concept uh, I really appreciate the input from Councillor Marula, especially with his addictions uh, history and uh, some of my colleagues as well so I, I think there there's uh, been a very positive response to the motion, Bill, uh, since I, I you know, tossed it out there on Friday, and I'm hopeful for a, a good discussion on uh, on Wednesday at Council.
0: Looking forward to that discussion on Wednesday at City Council. Councillor Jason Farr, Jay, thanks as always. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Bill. And good luck on Wednesday. Thanks. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: U.S. President Donald Trump's new attorney, Rudy Giuliani, uh, has been uh, doing the media circuit. Uh, he was on the, many of the uh, Sunday morning political shows uh, trying to lessen the legal burden on his client. Uh, some are wondering after those appearances whether he's doing more harm than good. Joining us uh, to talk about this is uh, Jacob Neheisel, and We're going to get to him in just a couple of seconds. But first of all, uh, a little segment of uh, Giuliani's comments on ABC yesterday.
1: I know this sounds funny to people there at home. I never thought 130000 was a real payment. It's a, a nuisance payment. Uh, when I settle this... Uh, for when it was real or a real possibility, it's a couple million dollars, not, not 130000 But you, you People did, don't go away for
0: $130,000. Uh, I guess, okay, uh, it's all perspective. Uh, Jacob Neuheisel is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences uh, and uh, joining us on the program to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for do, having me on the program. Do we take uh, Mr. Giuliani's uh, word on this that $130,000 is no big deal?
1: I suppose it's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, What he seems to be trying to do uh, with his many pivots is, uh, again, lessen the legal burden on uh, his client. Um, But by doing so, he he may be (laughs) uh, getting him into some other legal avenues that he would probably perhaps not like to go down.
0: Well, I I know I'm not a lawyer, but (laughs) I'm trying to get the gist of what was going on. Let's go back a couple of days uh, to when uh, Mr. Giuliani uh, suggested that uh, uh, Mr. Trump actually paid back uh, Cohen, Michael Cohen, for the money that he gave to Stormy Daniels. Uh, And and I guess, uh, from what we were told in hindsight... Uh, the reason for that statement was to try to indicate that, well, it wasn't really campaign contribution, it was just a loan that was repaid, something of that nature. Right. Uh, and it only seemed to exacerbate the problem from what I heard from legal experts.
1: Uh, again, also not a lawyer. Um, uh, what I think he's trying to angle for um, would be to uh, lessen the impact. Um, you know, The FEC has a, a range of penalties um, for various violations of campaign finance law and you know, I think a charitable reading of what he's trying to do is to sort of angle for something that is not quite as um, extravagant as you know illegal campaign contributions and the like.
0: <laughs> but on and on, we go and and uh, you know, hoisted upon his own petard. You know, Mr. Trump, in that famous conversation with the media on Air Force One a couple of weeks ago, said he had no knowledge of of the payment to stormy daniels and then bingo bango juliani comes on the scene and says oh yeah he yeah he you know cohen made the payment and then trump repaid him which indicates that he did have some knowledge of it
1: right and you know and president has had a very complicated um relationship with the truth <laughs> over the last uh, year or so um and you know, of course in the the lead up to the campaign as well um yeah, it's unclear what the what the angle here is, um and whether the different sides are actually communicating with each other. You know, it'd be easy to observe something like this and, and think about, you know, conspiracy theory or something like that. I think the, the better explanation is probably just incompetence.
0: Well, you wonder who's throwing whom under the bus in these situations because Trump contradicts him. I mean, then he was quoted saying about Giuliani that, well, uh, he's only been on the job for a day and, uh, you know, he kind of gets things messed up. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Giuliani, of course, in fact, had been on the job for more than a couple of weeks at that stage. So they really seem to be getting a mixed message here.
1: Yeah, I mean, as an outward observer, uh, and and not being either a fly on the wall inside the the negotiations or conversations that are going on, and not, again, as a a legal expert in in campaign finance law, um, it certainly does seem like it's um, not coordinated very well uh, among the different parties, and, um, you know, to to pivot a little bit toward an area that I'm a little more familiar with, um, it seems like the... The crime here is one that, um, if there is indeed a crime, that is rarely prosecuted. I think of John Edwards. Um, you know, think of some other high-profile examples of um, campaign finance violations. I think the bigger issue is that as long as the Trump camp keeps digging, um, they'll eventually stumble onto something that looks like obstruction.
0: And and therein lies the problem. I mean, I guess it, I do say it was easy, but uh, in in past days, of course, Trump was focused on the Mueller investigation. Well, it was initially the Comey investigation when he fired him, uh, Mueller investigation and and Russian involvement and uh, and the incarnations about that and the report from the Republican uh, you know congressional committee on this. Uh, but they've opened up a second front with uh, with the Cohen uh, charges and the raid on Cohen's office. Uh, which was not a federal jurisdiction I guess but it was actually New York State if I understand the the legalities of it correctly uh, which gives Trump far less uh, opportunity to try to intercede in that particular situation should he decide to do so and and I'm hearing stories Jacob that they're a lot more concerned about that investigation than they are about what Mueller's doing
1: I think that that might be true um, you know much of Trump's actions um, can be interpreted as uh, falling into the purview of his office um, you know, he he has the ability to, to get rid of uh, Comey. Uh, that is within his power. That's been a, you know, well-settled matter of, of um, law where, yeah, the, the, the subordinates serve at the pleasure of the president. Now, you know, there's some question as to how bad it looks if he keeps turning folks out of his administration. Um, but that is something that is within his purview as the chief executive. And a number of other things that he has done you know really there is a a way to say okay well that's just part of what he does meddling in this case however really goes beyond that mandate and there's really not much cover if you will provided by the office to say that he can you know meddle in these issues um in in um with respect to the the Cohen investigation,
0: is there any chance that we're ever going to find out exactly what's going on? <laughs> I know that sounds like a a rather bizarre you know blanket statement, but there's so much in, uh, going on here with Mueller's investigation, and we know nothing of. Uh, and certainly the investigation going into Cohen. And I know that uh, the the immediate retort from the the Trump administration and from Fox News was, well, this was illegal. They had no business doing that. It has nothing to do with the Russian investigation, et cetera, et cetera. But we it, we don't know what they know. We don't know what Mueller knows that that indicated to the to the New York DA that you should look into this, nor what the judge was told that actually signed off on this. And by the way, all of those are Republicans. So that takes a little steam out of the the, the White House argument that this is a partisan attack.
1: Sure. Yeah, I have no idea that uh, in today's polarized era uh, there can be anything that's completely above board, um, and that will even if we do know all of the details, the framing and the spin that's put on it by the various sides um, is going to to loom large in the Serena. So, even if we have all of the details, if it's all laid bare, I'm not sure that there can be an investigation in the polarized era that doesn't lead to charges of well, it's the other side going after some kind of witch hunt. You know, because Trump's line has consistently been, well, it's not just my side versus their side in terms of partisan politics, it's the swamp versus me. And if you throw prominent Republicans into the swamp, then it can become an us versus them type of scenario.
0: But when you look at what's gone on in the White House, uh, there's a strong argument to be made that, uh, you know, his promise to drain the swamp, that in fact what he's done is repopulated it. (laughs) Of course,
1: yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be uh, logically consistent uh, in order for it to, to stick together for someone who's a supporter. Um, it's uh, the same kind of thing throughout the campaign. He pitched himself as an outsider and somebody who um, is is foreign to the process and someone who's uh, a bit of a populist, while you know holding you know, large amounts of money and having a business empire. And so that's a, a strange
0: r- appeal for a populist to have. With that in mind, though. If you could, maybe give us a reading on, on what's going on and how this is being perceived uh, with the American people. and uh, Because, the, you know, there's this perception, and I, I can tell you, as, as for us looking at it from this side of the border, and I guess many people around the world, frankly, as the Trump campaign was moving along, uh, before the election, of course, there were so many, I guess, milestones along there. Uh, you know, the tape, I grabbed them by, the et cetera, et cetera, and some mm-hmm. of the other stuff that was going on where we said, well, that's going to sink them, and it didn't. So, you know, is, is any of this stuff actually going to have an impact, or is it going to have any opportunity or any, any motivation to make some of those people that had previously been supporters of Trump to actually change their minds?
1: In terms of shifting public opinion, I don't think any of this is going to have much of an impact. Maybe at the margins you'll have some folks who were tepid supporters or who pulled the lever for Trump um, because they saw him as a lesser of two evils turning against him, and um, all that's likely going to do in the short term is decrease Republican turnout in the midterms. Um, you know, we're in a polarized era in, in American politics where you typically pick your party or you pick your candidate, and then you engage in some um, some mental uh, exercises to make sure that any kind of criticism rolls off that candidate or that attitude object. Just so that you can maintain the, your image of your person as being the one who um, is the, the one you should look up to and, and is the one who um, really has the answer. And so I think as long as we're determining whether we like a candidate or like a party first and then figuring out the reasons to do so, um, I think we'll continue to, to reason ourselves in a position where just about anything uh, is going to, to roll off Trump's back.
0: And that's a societal phenomenon that that's really ongoing here, isn't it? I mean, we as, as a society these days, as you say, we we tend to make choices, uh, and then we we follow the whatever media it is or social media it is, or the posts on social media that'll substantiate the choice we already made.
1: Absolutely. Basic human psychology, uh, we don't like to to get into a situation that's called cognitive dissonance where we have multiple conflicting or competing pieces of information about a candidate or about a party. And so we do everything we can, engaging in motivated reasoning to seek out new sources that agree with us, talk to people who agree with us, and when we can't do that, we just dismiss things out
0: of hand. With that in mind then, Jacob, uh, for those of us that lived through Watergate and saw how that process unfolded, and by the way, we need to remind ourselves that was not a six or eight month process. That took a fair long time for for that, that process to move to the point where they started talking about impeachment. But... Can something like that even happen now, since there's such a polarization of opinion in in American politics now? I'm
1: certainly skeptical. (laughs) Um, At least when it comes to the level of public opinion, I'm skeptical that that anyone's going to look at something that Trump or or any other politician does, for that matter, who has a following. Says, yep, that's it. That's the the reason I'm going to not support this person anymore. Um, I think if we're going to see an impeachment, uh, it's going to be um, a political calculation. It's going to be when the House flips, which I do believe it may do so in 2018, um, and there's articles of impeachment brought through a political process.
0: But we have to get a further definition of impeachment, obviously. I mean, we saw what happened with the the Nixon White House uh, during that process, and and we have to remind ourselves that Nixon resigned. He he wasn't kicked out of office, uh, rather than go through that that impeachment process. But as as more than a few uh, observers have indicated, uh, that indicated that Nixon, for all his foibles, had some consciousness and said, I don't want to do this to the American people. More more importantly, maybe I don't want to do it to me. Uh, A lot of folks don't think that Donald Trump has that filter. I don't think
1: so. (laughs) I I think if uh, proceedings are brought, uh, he he will fight them the way that he has shown he does.
0: What about the Mueller investigation, Jacob? Where, where, where's this going? Uh, you know, we know that there's information. We know that the that the Mueller team has reached out to, to the Trump team uh, about t- Trump testifying under oath. Uh, Giuliani seems to be dead set against that, and I think there's some validity to that, given some of the stuff that Trump sure. has said. But on the other hand, you've got Trump saying, sure, I'd love to. Uh, we're, we're, uh, he doesn't seem to listen to the advice, which is maybe why they're down to Giuliani. I think he's, what, the f- third or fourth uh, attorney on this now?
1: Right you know I think it's it's Trump being trump um, he why lawyers don't want him in a deposition <laughs> is that they don't want him to perjure himself, and you know I think that um, any uh, lawyer worth their salt could probably get Trump into a situation where you know you're questioning his um, power, you're questioning his intelligence, his ability to do something, um, and he's going to just go for the big the big sell. And in, in the legal context, that's where you start to get people. So I can see why Giuliani and other lawyers are nervous about putting him in front of a deposition or putting him through that process, rather, um, given that he speaks off the cuff. And, again, given his rather casual relationship with the truth at times, it doesn't have to be anything big. Um, it just has to be you know, demonstrable that he lied under oath.
0: But given his ego, is, is he is he... That narcissistic that he thinks I can beat these guys, I, I uh, could I could go before that committee and I could show them.
1: Yeah, I'm not. And um, early in the conversation I said I'm not a lawyer. Um, I'm also not a psychologist, and I certainly haven't had Trump on the couch. But you know, my personal view is that yeah, it looks like he would would probably you know say things fully expecting the power of the office to to precede him and to cover him in all these situations.
0: I mean, he's contradicted himself, not under oath, obviously, and you you have to wonder, uh, again, just whether or not he has the ability to be able to check himself, as as somebody would have to do, I guess, given some of the the, the contradictions that he's come out with publicly.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, I I wonder if he has that ability. Um, Again, not diagnosing anything, but he he does seem to have a rather um, torture relationship with uh, the truth.
0: Uh, The the suggestion of the weekend from Rudy Giuliani is that uh, the the President may actually, if in in fact uh, there is a subpoena issued, he would take the Fifth Amendment, uh, which of course, this is the great thing in the media these days, as soon as you have a a quote from the President, uh, we simply have to go back through the archives and not too far back into the archives to find a contradictory statement. Uh, And this one goes, of course, back to the presidential election uh, when Hillary Clinton uh, took the Fifth Amendment about the congressional investigation into the uh, private email server uh and Trump's response was the mob takes the fifth if you're innocent why are you taking the fifth amendment <laughs> yet now his attorney is Rudy Giuliani is suggesting that if he is subpoenaed that he should take the fifth
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I don't know that I love this uh twist in American politics where the the whataboutism is is coming to the fore. Um I don't know that that helps anybody, but uh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it it is not difficult to find uh, contradictory statements um on uh just about any matter from Trump and this one in particular looks bad and that um you know, he's on record saying only guilty people take the fifth and here he is with a, a his legal team suggesting that that's the way out.
0: If you were a betting man, is uh is is he's is he going to fire Mueller at some point?
1: Um uh I really don't think so i uh, I think in the cultural memory we have the what was it the the Saturday night massacre yeah
0: with um, Archibald Cox yeah
1: right that uh that really started the the um, process raining down on Nixon, and I think that even though it 's within his power to not necessarily fire Mueller directly but set in motion a a series of events that would lead to the Mueller being fired uh, i don 't know that that's going to help him one it 's going to look really bad, the optics are terrible. And two, they're just going to find somebody else to fill that position. Um, it's not like the investigation is going to go away if Mueller goes away. Uh, and so if I were advising him, I would I would say absolutely not. Um, this is not something you want to meddle with.
0: Political partisanship always plays a part in this. you mentioned, it's a Republican-dominated uh, House of Representatives and, and the Senate right now, uh, which is obviously playing into some of the support that Trump's getting from people like Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell and others. Uh, and that dynamic, as you mentioned, might change. And we saw that again, if I can just go back to the parallel of Watergate, uh, and and I don't know if it was the John T, John Dean uh, testimony or, or something, but there was a tipping point, as you recall, uh, in those uh, negotiations and that uh, testimony, Jacob, where even the Republicans on the committee, people like Howard Baker and Lowell Weicker, there's finally said, you know what, this is it, we're just forget about the partisanship, uh, we have to do what we have to do. And that really seemed to turn the tide, as it did with the American people. I, I'm not so sure that there's going to be a point like that in this investigation.
1: Um, it will be interesting to see what happens uh, when and if the House flips in, in 2018. Um, you know, it's, uh, when you have control of the levers of power, you will do an awful lot to ensure that you have that control. If you've already lost that, uh, then the the safer bet might be to Turn against your your chief executive, the leader of your party. Um, save face. Do what you can to to continue your own electoral successes down the line. Um, and so, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see what would have happened had Republicans actually been in charge of the House um, throughout Watergate. Um, it was probably going to happen whether or not they were on board um, or not. And um, by getting on board, it allows them to be on the right side of history without really any risk to their own personal standing or their own personal calculations.
0: But as you um, mentioned, this is a different day, isn't it?
1: This is definitely a different day. Um, I think if the House flips, you may see more willingness on the part of Republicans to, to go along with um, investigations and to go along with Democrats and, and calling for an ouster.
0: Jacob Neuheisel uh, from the uh, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Jacob, thank you so much for the time and uh, for the perspective. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: This is uh, Emergency Preparedness Week, and uh, later on today, uh, you're going to get an earful, uh, not from me, but uh, from the wireless uh, public alert system uh, that is going to go live on many, if not most, I guess, of our uh, smartphones uh, that's only one part of the stuff I want, uh, I want to have a conversation with though. Connie Verhage is with us, who is the lead emergency preparedness coordinator for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. It's great mm-hmm. to have you here. There's so much I want to okay. talk to you about. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to get into the emergency, the public in a second, okay? Sure. But your job uh, is, is obviously us preparing for emergencies, which can take all shapes or forms. They mm-hmm. can be catastrophic. They could be, well, we've seen, just watch the news for f- 15 minutes and you'll see what's going on around the world. But, it, but they also can be weather related, uh, and I guess one of the messages, obviously, kind of that you want to get across this week is to be ready as much as we can. Uh, we'll talk about how you, as a city, get ready for it, but we, as, as individuals, I'll give you an example. <laughs> uh, this past Friday, it got windy, uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the power went out, and uh, and I like to pride myself on saying, yeah, we're we're prepared for all this stuff. I've got flashlights, and we get batteries, and we're ready to go in case something like that were to happen. Mm-hmm. Then it happens, and mm-hmm. it's where did I put those? Mm-hmm. Where are the? I don't have. What do you mean? I don't have Triple A? will use the last ones. You, you've got to always make sure that you're doing stuff, and, I, and now because right. our power was out for 24 hours in, in our neighborhood up in Ancaster, and uh, you don't realize how much you rely on something like hydro until you don't have it. That's right. And and this was to our advantage. I guess this was this was May. Mm-hmm. This could have been January
3: and we were very lucky. We were really really lucky. It was a, it was a relatively nice night as far as weather goes. We didn't have really cold weather, we didn't have really hot weather. People can be comfortable in their home overnight without the power. Yeah, we didn't right. need.
0: We but didn't, but we, I remember the ice storm from a few years ago. Right. And and the right. impact that had. I mean, that was right. just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And there were people there that were, well, they had to leave their homes mm-hmm. because they, there was no heat.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's right. And and we do at the city have uh, reception centers that we could put people, send people to so that they can be comfortable. We do ask people to have a plan in place. So so this week is all about getting prepared and what the city of Hamilton has done. And you'll see it on the website. If you go to the uh, www.hamilton.ca slash emergencies, it's five days to emergency preparedness. And what we're asking everyone to do is to take each day and do something so today is day one and what we'd like you to do is plan think about what do you need and everyone is unique so what do you need to put in place what's your evacuation plan what do you need uh, so that you do if you lose power what what will you what do you have in place? What do you need if you've been asked to shelter in place and there's no resources for three or four days? So think about that. So that's day one. So today is to think about your needs. Tomorrow is to get your kit. So what do you need for your kit? And we ask you you get two kits. One is a grab and go. So you get a knock on the door at two in the morning. And you're asked to evacuate and we, we, and they are usually pretty insistent that you leave because there's, there's a threat. And you think about the uh, forest fires at Fort McMurray, there was somebody and she left and, and, you know, we heard this story. She left with a package of cheese and her snow pants. She just panicked. She didn't know really what to take, and that's what she grabbed. Someone else took her wedding dress. So what we ask you to do is to get a kit ready, have it at your front door so that if you get that knock, away you go. And in that kit, we want you to have um, supplies to think about if you're staying at someone's house or you're staying at a reception center. So a change of clothes, um, your glasses, your medication. Those are the things that we want you to think
0: about. And 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 I guess to plan ahead for something like this. I mean, the, you know, because the the Fort McMurray thing was interesting because I remember talking to some of the residents and a couple yeah. of the reporters that were up there, and and they said that yeah, we saw the flames and everything, and they thought, well, okay, they'll let us know. And like five minutes later, somebody's knocking on the door and said, the wind just shifted. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. not ready.
3: That's right. I, and you're, you're. Where do not, I go? I,
0: what do you mean? Where, where where am I supposed to drive? Exactly. Exactly. You should, you, you pre-plan so you know where you... And it mm-hmm. could happen here. Mm-hmm. It may not be a fire. Mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. be a gas leak. could be a train derailment. We saw what at lech I mean, there's so many different things. Exactly. Anything can happen Anything. at any time.
3: That's right. That's why we want you to be prepared. So get your kit ready. Have it at the front of your door. And when you're asked to go, away you go. And there's there's information on our website to give you exactly that list. right? And on the third day, on Wednesday, we want you to think about your unique needs. So if you have medical mm. um, needs, if there is is somebody in your family who has special needs. Think about that and what they need. I have a 92-year-old mother who lives alone. Her needs are very different than somebody else who's got a young child who's five years old. What are their needs? So that's the third day. On the fourth day, it's all about the alerting. It's about information. It's about where do you get your information, signing up for those alerts. And on the fifth day, we want you to think about a car kit um, and your pets, because when you leave, we want you to take your pets. Fort McMurray, one of their biggest issues that they dealt with, they had everybody out. Every single person was out. And now they had to deal with the pets because people were calling and saying, my cat is there. My my dog is there. So please take your kit, uh, your cat and your, your animals with you and you have a kit for them also. And that's different needs. They're big, big needs for, for your pets.
0: You see, the, the dogs aren't going to be a problem for us because it's... <laughs> They're in the car before I ever oh, time okay. I head towards that. So, I, so yeah. they'll be there. They'll be saying, hey, come on, hurry <laughs> up, hurry up. Hurry yeah, up. What's yeah. holding you up? Yeah, now, yeah. I don't mean to be flipping about it, but, I mean, you need to understand and have a plan for that. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, there are yeah. people these days that, that have medications that they may need. remember right. to have those. Or, right. uh CPAP machines for some people. I mean, on and on it goes. Those exactly. things that you think, I'm in a hurry. Oh, gee, I forgot. You can't go back.
3: That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And the, the city does have... Um, uh, they work with animal control who have a place for the pets to go. We ask that you get your own contact name and person so that if you do have to leave, you can you can bring it to your friends and they can look after the dog. And if you don't have that, then the city does have an animal um, control shelter that they will put these pets in because they can't go to the rece- reception center.
0: Now, the reassuring thing here that we need to talk about here is, is and, and you're accenting and as you should, about what we as, as individuals and as families need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess the foundation for this whole thing, Connie, is, is the, the reassurance, I guess, that whatever is going to happen, and like I say, it could be a windstorm, it could be any number of things, it could be a fire, uh, that the city has a plan. And
3: we do. When uh, we yeah. And we practice, and we do um, drills, um, we do training and education. Emergency preparedness starts with you. So that you're the first person that needs to be prepared and it's a circle. So if you think about you in that circle and if you're prepared, then that will make it easier on all our emergency response people. So then outside of that circle is the municipality. We have an an operation center. It is what you call a hot site. It's ready 24-7. That is where we will all get together and we will discuss how can we support what's happening in the community. So is it is it an evacuation? In, in a situation
0: like that, walk me through this, because yeah. I, I went through an a, a, a exercise like that way back when I was on City Council, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a, a scenario that was developed, and I think it was a chemical spill down by the waterfront, something like that. Uh, and and if I recall, uh, the chief of police was there, the chief fire chief, uh, emergency services, in other words, uh, you know, paramedics, et cetera, uh, you had members, Well, you name the list, I mean, I guess hospitals are there I mean, everybody has a, some uh, sort of representation
3: That's right, we do, we have a we have a list and that list is three deep, so if the fire chief cannot make it there then he has a deputy or an assistant deputy that will be in that operation center to provide us information about what's happening at the site, so we have unified command at the site where we have fire police and ambulance and public works and what other agencies are at the site, they're going to feed information into our operation center to see we need to expand the evacuation center. We need to open up a reception center. We need more trucks. We need more barriers. We need buses. They will let us know what we need, what they need at the site, and then it's us at the operation center that will provide what they need. So that's how that's what we do at the at the operation center is we give them the resources needed. So what you attended was what we call an exercise, and we mm-hmm. have exercises every year. We actually do a couple of exercises, um, and we develop different scenarios so we've had everything from a hazmat uh scenario we have had um uh Chemical releases. We've had active shooters. We've had w- whatever we could think of. Uh, I'm not going to tell you this year's because we like to keep it a little bit secret. Um, so that's uh, well, that's the one a that a test. lot of us
0: lived through was uh, was Plastamin in 1997. Mm-hmm. That horrific fire down in the North End. That's right. Uh, with that factory, of course. And uh, I, I can still recall driving you know towards the end of the Jollycat there mm-hmm. up on the mountain. The sky was black. I mean, yeah. it looked like it was midnight with no yeah. lights at all. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. how extensive the smoke was. Yeah. Uh, everybody got. It involved in that. I mm-hmm. mean, because there were, obviously there was the fire issue, yeah, yeah. Uh, the policing issue, there were traffic yeah. issues, there was an evacuation of the general hospital that had to happen. Yeah. So this, they don't just say, how are we going to do this? They're, they already work on this stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. So that's they're, they're,
0: you guys, they, all the corporations, including the city and all the major, they, you guys are doing this on a regular basis.
3: We drill all the time. We, absolutely, the hospitals just went through a drill just recently. Um, getting prepared, because that's what, we, you have to be able to know your job, know your responsibility, so that when you actually activate, everything just runs like a well-oiled uh, machine, and that's how we want it to run. And that's why the the, the exercising, the training, the education, all of that, it's, uh, you know, we, we make sure that they are well-informed so that their job is smooth.
0: All right, let's talk a little bit about this thing that's going to be happening, uh, this uh, wireless public alerting system. What's yeah. going on here? So
3: at 155 today, everyone who is, who has a, uh, a cell phone will get an alert to say, and it's just going to be, it looks like a, test, a text message, but it's not because the the channel uses a separate uh, pathway to give you a message to say, um, there is, now the message today would just be, this is a test. But mm-hmm. in a real life event, they'll tell you what the scenario is and what they want you to do. And it's geo-targeted when they do this alert uh, during a real event. Today, it's going out um, across Canada. So this is, their testing different today. Different times, different days. Yeah, actually, I I need to re... Uh, yeah, I,
0: I think Quebec's doing theirs this morning. Quebec,
3: Yeah, actually, Quebec is this morning and we're this afternoon. And then the rest of the provinces, uh, the rest of Canada is on uh, Wednesday. Okay. right, And then they're doing another test in September, but that will just be the TV and radio. So they will be now doing Now, some it. people
0: have compared this to the Amber Alerts. Is that a fair comparison? That, yes,
3: it is. It's absolutely, that's exactly what's going to happen. So they, they will right, give When you, you could that be watching television
0: or listening to the radio, and then all of a sudden you get this, that loud, The tone. Irritating, that's uh, right. attention-getting Correct. sound. Correct. That's you can't right. mistake it for anything right. else.
3: That's right. It won't interrupt. If you're on the phone and you're talking on the phone, it won't interrupt your phone conversation. But you will get a flash-up that will say, um, you know, this type of alert is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, if your phone is on silence, you won't get it. If your phone is turned off, you won't get it. During a real event, if your phone is off or it's um, on silence, when you go to turn it back on, if that event is still happening, that alert will show up. So the alert will tell you this is a time-sensitive event, um, you know, once the winds have down died di- died down or um, Boston bombing was a perfect example yeah, once yeah. they had you know they had caught the person, then that alert is now over and they will give you a message saying this alert is now terminated.
0: Uh, because not everybody can know everything that's going on. I mean, you know, to use that, and, and again, we talked with people from uh, the radio station in Boston, uh, the, the bombing, the, 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 Bas- the Boston Marathon bombing, yeah. uh, and, and there were still people that were saying, yeah, I'm going down to the finish line. No, you can't. Yeah. Something happened down there. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I didn't have the radio on. Mm-hmm. This will mm-hmm. make sure that you get you get Correct. that information. That's
3: right, right. And again, it's geo targeted, so it's only going to hit people in that area. So they're going to send out an alert to say, these are the boundaries. And anyone in that area who has a cell phone, the cell phone is on, it's connected to an LTE network, then you'll hear that alert.
0: I, I'm gr- really gratified that they're doing this, and and again, we're just getting into the game here. As you've right. talked about the Boston example, this has been happening in other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Very effectively. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Yes, it has. Um, this is a long time coming. I They started this work, I'm going to say, back in 2010. They have been petitioning to get this done. Uh, so this is really, really good news.
0: Who makes the determination to send the alert out?
3: It will be, so usually it's an environmental issue. So the Environment Canada will send it to Emergency Management Ontario, and then they'll send it out. So it's it's... Wherever the alert or however the alert is impacting. So police can can send it out. And they send it to Emergency Management Ontario. Those uh, Emergency Management Ontario will send it to the radio stations. And then that's how it gets uh, sent out, or now, the broadcasting system. And, and now this
0: is not going to be uh, abused. And this is not going to be say, hey, there's a, a, a collision down on James Street. Don't go along there. That, that's that's minutiae. That, Correct. There are other avenues Correct. for this. This yeah. is about crisis situations.
3: Life-threatening is how they... Um, they um, the criteria it has to be life-threatening if you've got a life threatening situation then they'll send the alert out
0: and it could just as you mentioned it's it's geocentric so in other words it could just be for Hamilton correct uh, That's right. it, there could be one that just says here you know there's something going on here the skyway Bridge is fall I don't want to create an ugly scenario here but something <laughs> yeah. like that to say hey you know, this is a people in Stony Creek you don't have to worry about this could be in Toronto but Hamilton or Toronto incidents uh, any number of things like that correct now exactly. we're doing the test today. Mm-hmm. When does it actually go into effect?
3: Um, oh, it w- it's in effect now. Okay. It will be. Yeah, they actually had it ready to go. April six was the launch date, and this is the testing. So, so the fact
0: that I haven't heard anything yet is good news.
3: Correct. <laughs> so, yes, that's right. Yeah. But I will hear yeah. something
0: later on today. hmm And the reason yeah. we wanted to have you on yeah. is first of all to talk about emergency preparedness yeah. week, but also yeah. uh, for those that didn't hear about this story, you're going to get uh, a shock, I guess, uh, uh, later on this afternoon. One fifty-five today. Now, how long does this mm-hmm. last?
3: Eight seconds. Okay. Is the test?
0: But it's just as you said to get your attention. Read the message, I guess. If there's a message at- and accompanying text with it, and, and react accordingly.
3: Correct. And they'll they'll give you instructions of what you need to do. So they may tell you to evacuate. They They may tell you to shelter in place, they may tell you to take this travel route, um, or to limit your travel, Um, they'll give you instructions of what you need to do.
0: This is going to be so helpful though, because again, you talked about environmental concerns, uh, and we look at some of the stuff that's going on, I mean, they're just getting into the ugly weather season, hurricane season, and tornado season, I guess more appropriately down in the states. Uh, we get those here now, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. sadly, on account of a regular basis mm-hmm, now. But mm-hmm. uh, if, in fact, they get advanced warning on such th- situations like this, this could, this could come in very handy. Absolutely. Seek shelter, go into the basement.
3: Absolutely. I mean, take a look at what happened at the Godridge tornado. Yeah. The, that cell came up very, very quickly. There was very little warning. Uh, something like this can can actually save some lives and, and you know, uh, Put people in a safe position.
0: All right, if they want to get any information about any of the stuff we just talked about, where can they go?
3: You go to www.hamilton.ca slash emergencies.
0: All right, so good to have you here today Connie, and thanks for all the great work that you guys do thank to you. keep us ready.
3: Well thank you very much for having me.
0: Connie Verhege uh, from uh, the Emergency Preparedness Coordinator of course from the City of Hamilton.
3: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.